Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, will join us to discuss his latest article on the Canadian link to Chinese police stations in our country. Canada's inflation rate is rapidly cooling this spring, a welcome development for the Bank of Canada as it holds interest rates, but what's going to happen long term? What are the implications of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act on the Canadian competitiveness? Great report that uh, we're going to analyze for you on that. And what grocery items saw the biggest decreases and increases in the month of March? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. U.S. law enforcement officials say this is part of a broader effort by Beijing to conduct clandestine operations without jurisdiction or diplomatic approval. Members of the U.S. Justice Department say more than 40 people are facing charges with all believed to be operatives of the Chinese government and part of a larger group that aims to influence global perceptions of China. In one case, two men were arrested in New York City, where the suspects are said to have been operating an undeclared police station and are said to have deleted government conversations after the investigation began. Uh, Reggie Caccini from, uh, well, Global News Washington, but he's following that story that actually emanated from New York City just a couple of days ago. And if if the whole premise sounds vaguely familiar, uh, it's because it is, uh, because we've reported on this and we've talked about this extensively over the last little while. Uh, There was a similar situation. As a matter of fact, the FBI report uh, actually highlights the fact that uh, a couple of these illegal stations uh, set up by the uh, Chinese government are in Canada. We know that to be a fact. Uh, there's been some extensive research done by our next guest, uh, who joins us to uh, give us an update on what's happening. He, of course, is Stephen Chase, who is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, who's uh, been covering this story. Stephen, thank you for the time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, I read with great interest the uh, the piece that, uh, that you and your colleague Bob Fife have worked on over the last uh, couple of days here about this idea. And and as I say, there's a lot of Canadians right now that saying, yeah, yeah, we've got them up here too, don't we? Uh, the RCMP admitted in your story here that they've known this has been going on for quite some time. And uh, at, at the risk of sounding overly sarcastic, it sounds to me as if their response to it was we're going to park our cars out front and, and scare the hell out of them so they don't do anything. The FBI decided to arrest people. What what's What's the difference here? Yeah, the FBI actually uh, has, like you said, uh, laid charges against two men in connection with uh, with a illegal uh, Chinese police station in Manhattan, Chinatown. Uh, in uh, Canada, we seem to be still investigating. And the uh, when asked about this last month at committee, at parliamentary committee, uh, the then uh, deputy commissioner said, "Well, we we scared them away." So. We're not really sure where it's going. I don't really have a lot of faith in the RCMP to get their man, so to speak, but we'll see where that goes. I mean, the fact is, is what we have is this, these uh, stations that were ostensibly set up to help overseas Chinese people or people with still with connections to China do their paperwork, right? Driver's license, mm-hmm. uh, other sort of insurance and so on. But then they, they through a sort of mission creep, they began to also be used to go after dissidents and people that the Chinese government wanted to return to come home. The Chinese government is very puts a lot of effort and energy into trying to control uh, people who've left China, the overseas diaspora, and, and actually intimidate or uh, threaten or cajole people into coming back home if they've run afoul of what uh, Beijing believes they've run afoul of the law. So that's the real um, outrage here, um, uh, both, and that's been expressed in like 15 countries where these have been discovered after a Human Rights Group last fall unveiled the or exposed them. And so uh, what we know in Canada uh, last September, when the report first came out, was they 
Safeguard Defenders, this uh, Spanish-based group that's been tracking this, and uh, said there was three in Toronto. And then they uh, they augmented their report later in December last year, so there was two. Sorry, there was one in Vancouver. And then uh, we learned in early this year that RCMP believes there may be two in Montreal. So quite a lot of them. Uh, RCMP's response, like you said, was, uh, well, we scared them off in Toronto. We're not really sure what's happening with the rest of them. After my deadline yesterday, I did get a, or two days ago, I did get a response from the RCMP saying we're still investigating. Uh, yeah, we're working on it. But CISA seems quite adamant about this. And, and as you and I have talked about, and you've mentioned in your previous reporting, uh, I, I, I don't know if we can actually identify the protocol here, but CISA seems to do the investigation on an international level, but they can't lay charges. They have to give the information to the RCMP, uh, as I understand the process. And the RCMP, as you they're say, real- is, is not, they're not comfortable, I guess, with laying charges out there. Wait, uh, it's, they don't have the power to, but they also, there's a problem in Canada, which is that uh, the CSIS and, and and authorities that can lay charges, uh, you know, the RCMP and other police forces, CSIS doesn't work hand-in-hand hand with them enough, and so they don't collect evidence to, to the sort of the legal standard necessary for laying charges, unlike what country what other countries do. Uh, is, is that because of silos, or is it because uh, they silos. don't like to share information? And you remember we created uh, CSIS, and we took, it, we took that responsibility away from the RCMP because of yeah. concerns about the RCMP, but we effectively siloed it too much. And so CSIS is basically like a secret reporting service. Just think of them as secret reporters that nobody, <laughs> you know, uh, in fact, I've heard people there describe it like that. And then they're, they're supposed to pass on their reports to people who can lay charges and, and investigate, and then they're supposed to investigate. But it's often not easy to duplicate work, especially if it's, you've only got one chance to collect that information. Other countries have much more integrated teams where, uh, for instance, uh, the, the sort of, um, you know, foreign version of CSIS in a particular country works with law authorities to collect information from the get-go that can be used in court. But as you mentioned, i got a couple of seconds left here, and there's one part of the, the story that you guys wrote that just jumped out at me. Uh, because of we're lagging behind and because we don't seem to have this coordination, uh, we don't have a, 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 a registry in it for those who are you know, influencing with foreign governments. Uh, basically what these guys are doing in Montreal are in Toronto, it's, it's not illegal in Canada, is it? Oh, it's it's well, it's it's, it's against uh, the conventions, the d- diplomatic conventions that China yeah. signed, the Geneva Conventions, the Vienna Conventions about what uh, about operating other people's countries. That's definitely against those conventions, and people should be expelled. Uh, one of the problems is that the Chinese government tends to use proxies, tends to use civilians to run these things, sort of a, as a you know giving them a bit of a distance, uh, a space from from it. Well, we'll be following your reporting on this over the next little while. Uh, great work as always, and thanks for spending some time with us today, Stephen. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Take care. Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Golden Mail. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. That's the lowest it's been since August 2021 as global price pressures ease and high interest rates weigh on the economy. The federal agency says Canadians paid more for mortgage interest last month, but that cost increase was offset by lower energy prices. Lower prices for fruits and vegetables led to a deceleration in grocery prices as well, with prices up 9.7% in March, down from 10.6% in February. Inflation in Canada is expected to continue decelerating this year, with most economists forecasting the annual rate to fall to 3% by mid-2023. 
Amelie Sikney in Press, Ottawa. Thanks so much, Jude. That's supposed to be good news, and, and we're going to try to uh, enhance that picture just a little bit for you in the next couple of seconds. Glad you're with us. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL in London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We've been waiting for good news. We want to see those numbers decline. Uh, we want to see prices go down as well. I, I don't know if we're where we want to be right now, but we're certainly going to ask our next guest about that. He, of course, is Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, uh, I guess it's not quite ready for us to be popping champagne corks and celebrating. You know, we, we beat this thing down. Uh, but I guess we're taking baby steps, aren't we? Well, uh, actually, this is a little more than a baby step, Bill. I think if you'd asked me to predict what inflation was going to be in March, I was hoping, hoping maybe around 4.8% down from 5.2. That would have been a nice drop, almost half a percent. Instead, we got a drop that was nearly one full percent, 0.9%. That's bigger than I was expecting. And it really shows two things. First, we're now dropping out some of the increases that we saw a year ago right after the Ukrainian war. That caused a shockwave through the economy. But we are making great progress. It was just last week uh, that you and I chatted when the Bank of Canada said they thought inflation could hit 3% in the, quote, middle of 2023. Well, this is April, uh, the middle of 2023. It's only a couple of months away. We thought, wow, that, that's a pretty optimistic forecast. But now that we're down to where we are, I, I think it's certainly reachable. Still too high. We've got to be clear to everybody. For, we're not really celebrating 4%. We're, we're celebrating the move downwards as we get closer to the, the central bank's target of 2 to 3%. And even uh, the Bank of Canada, Governor Tiff Macklin, I think, seemed to underscore that, didn't he, Marvin, with his comments, that uh, he's pleased, uh, as, as you just mentioned, uh, with the way we've gone. But he says that last mile or kilometer, whatever you want to call it, uh, to get to where he wants to be uh, is going to be pretty tough. Uh, there's there's a lot of work yet to be done on this. And I, I guess the last thing they want to see here is for us to stall at this rate, at this position anyway. Right, right. Stalling would be the worst possible thing for everybody. Uh, uh, but conceivably, again, Bill, if this is where we are right now, then when we get the data for this month, April, about a month from now in May, you know, it wouldn't shock me to find that inflation had fallen into the 3% range, the high 3% range. But this is almost a bit like we don't want to scare anything. Everything's moving in the right direction. Let's not jinx it. Let's not celebrate too much, but let's also not, you know, wring our hands too much. Just let these things evolve. And if if everything is right, we may be able to get through this on two fronts, not only with lower inflation, but we may be able to avoid a recession. You might remember last week as well, when the Bank of Canada made their announcement, they said, look, the economy looks like it's going to have stronger growth than we first thought. And they felt the odds of us slipping into a recession in 2023 had been diminished greatly. That's still my belief. I think the Bank of Canada is steering this vessel well, but I'm still too optimistic to say they've accomplished that mission just now. Two of the things that I guess have uh, the most dramatic impact on, on our everyday lives, our household days, uh, are groceries and, and, and gasoline. Let's face it, you know, we, we're back to driving. You know, we're not isolated in homes anymore. Uh, and and I know that the, the stats I saw from this report yesterday said that uh, gasoline prices fell 14% over the past year. 
but they're still fluctuating. I mean, you know, I, I oh, yeah. you know, driving home yesterday afternoon, I saw, oh, it had actually gone down about four cents from it was yesterday morning. I woke up this morning and it's eight cents higher than that now. I mean, so the, this up and down like this is, is awfully frustrating and it's awfully hard for consumers to try to adjust to that. Right. So let's break those into two different chunks, if we can, Bill. Okay. Uh, food inflation, we know, had been bad over the last year. But again, very heart, uh, heartwarming sign to see food inflation drop by a, almost a full percent again in the month of March. That's going in the right direction. And as we head into the uh, spring and summer, that means locally grown fruits and vegetables will start appearing on the shelves. And that, again, should help us. The other thing that's happened over the last month is a bit of a rise in the Canadian dollar. Uh, we're not at 75 cents, but we've gone over 74 from where we were in the 73 cent range. I realize, again, that doesn't seem like very much. But when I'm importing goods like fruits and vegetables from the United States or other countries where I have to use American dollars, any rise in the Canadian dollar means those goods are actually becoming a little cheaper for us. So I think there again, there's good news there now. Oil is a different story. Oil and then ultimately gasoline is a different story. We've actually seen prices rise a little bit. They were at around $70 a barrel for oil. Now it's flirting with $80 a barrel. Those nice people at OPEC, they uh, are very clear that they don't like, they don't want oil at $60 a barrel. They didn't even like it at 70. They've cut back on their production a bit to make it bounce up closer to $80 a barrel. Uh, so, you know, I'm not seeing a lot more gas price relief for the rest of this year. But the comment that you made about how it varies so much even during a day, I think is very important for people to realize, at least here in Hamilton, we have something called the Costco effect. Costco yeah. sells gas to its customers and they sell it at a pretty good price because they're trying to attract people to their store to go shopping. The difference is their gas bar isn't open 24 hours a day. And so what you'll notice is when the Costco gas bar is open and doing well, prices fall in a neighborhood. The minute Costco closes, the prices go back somewhere else. So I find it's best to buy gasoline more mid to late in the day rather than first thing. At least let Costco help drive the prices down a little bit. It's a unique thing here. You don't see it in Burlington. You don't see it in Oakville, but you see it here in Hamilton. And that's the Costco effect. Yeah, I see that. Uh, you know, just not too many blocks away from from where we're living, and you know, you can actually drive by and see the impact, of the, the the fluctuation. The other element, though, too, and I just wanted to get your read on this because I think you and I talk about this almost every year when this happens. Uh, one of the reasons why the price went up last night, we are told, uh, is because the refineries are switching over to what they call summer weight uh, gasoline. I guess it is. And I, I've seen some of the comments on social media that says, "Oh, come on, you're pulling our legs." Oh, that's they're calling BS on this, but that is a thing, isn't it? Well, well, it is. And so uh, uh, we have two different kind of formulations for gasoline, one for the winter, one for the summer. And the gas companies themselves put in certain additives. Now, what, what is the difference between the spring and the summer? Well, in, or excuse me, the winter and the summer. In winter, our, our climate is fairly dry. And so there's less worry about water somehow condensing in gas tanks, uh, both your personal gas tank or in the tank at the gas station. But in the summer, when things get a lot more humid, they're more worried about water and its effects in the engine. So they add some additives that basically help to absorb that water and then it'll turn it basically into an alcohol that can pass through the system. So there is a difference in formulation. Now, again, I understand those people who call crap on this. Uh, 
is it is it two cents a liter? Is it one cents a liter? I've never seen a good accounting as to how much more expensive one is versus the other. Uh, as well, this time of the year is when we also see some winter maintenance. So they'll temporarily shut down a refinery for a week or two to do the maintenance after the winter months to get ready for the summer. And of course, when you eliminate that supply, it temporarily drives prices up as well. This, this is, as you say, an annual cycle that we go through. I don't think it's false. I think there's a reality there, but how much, you know, we'll never know. Exactly. Uh, one other final thing I want to talk to you about here, because I know we're kind of tight for time, but the, uh, when interest rates uh, started to, to climb, as per the, part, the Bank of Canada policy, uh, it caused a great deal of angst for homeowners, especially if they had to renew the mortgage or were thinking of doing it right now. Now that inflation seems to be falling at a pretty considerable rate and, and, our, and our cost of living seems to be going down at well, which is good. One, well, actually, one of my friends was just saying, well, we got to renew. I guess that means that mortgage rates are going to come down now. Uh, I think the short answer to that is no, they're not. No, they're not today or tomorrow, but I think they will come down. So, Bill, again, let's let's give you a, a simple example. If inflation today is running at 4.3%, but the prime interest is at 4.5%, we don't see that very often. Normally, the interest rates are, are a little more consistent between these. In this case, the interest rates above what the inflation rate is, conceivably in two months, you may see the uh, inflation rate drop into say three and a half percent. Will the prime rate still be four and a half? Now, I think the answer for the next three months is yes, because the Bank of Canada doesn't want to take the foot off the brake too quickly. They want to keep seeing inflation come down. But I believe, I, I, I can't prove it to you, it is just a belief that before this year is out, then you're going to see a move from the Bank of Canada to cut interest rates. It'll start small, just a quarter of a percent, but I think we'll actually begin to see them reel this back, assuming inflation keeps going where it is. So if you're facing a renewal later this year or in 2024, there actually may be some good news for you. But if it's happening in the next three months, you're stuck with the rates we've got. Unless you want to go for a variable, I guess, and that'll give you a little leeway if you do see them start to fall. Uh, boy, we've been through this uh, this little game time and time again when it comes to rates. And I, I, I feel frustrated, but I know the bankers do at the same time because they're really just following the policies uh, that the big honchos on Bay Street are telling them to do. So I guess just try to ride it out as best we can. Marvin, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of competition and a lot of concern, of course, about uh, some of the U.S. legislation uh, to do with the economy. Uh, certainly under the Trump administration, there seemed to be a, a rather antagonistic relationship between the two countries. Uh, we were hoping that things were going to get better under the Biden administration, and, and that there's been some sense of cooperation. Uh, but one very concerning piece of legislation, of course, uh, was the uh, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act that was passed some time ago. And we have to question, I think, and should be questioning just how that's going to impact our economies and what we need to do to respond. Well, there's an interesting paper out uh, that addresses that. It's called Game On, the Implications of the U.S. U.S. Inflation Reduction Act for Canadian Competitiveness. Uh, the author is Glenn Hodgson. Glenn has about 36 years experience in global and Canadian macroeconomics, international trade analysis and finance, and uh, tax policy. I have these big picture topics that are going to have an impact. And uh, he joins us. He's written this paper and he joins us to talk about uh, where we are and what Canada needs to do to, to stay in the game, I guess. Uh, Glenn, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. 
We were always worried about about you know the the big guys to the south of us and and how their policies are going to have an impact, whether it's you know with steel imports and a number of other things. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was a bold move by the Biden administration to to move forward, uh, marrying obviously economic growth with the, with the environmental concerns, and. Uh, I guess the obvious question here is, are we still in the game? Are we still competitive with them? And and not just with the United States, but, but with other nations and other parts of the world that are moving in that direction as well. Yeah, we're still in the game. The, the federal government has taken the response to the Investment Reduction Act, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, very seriously. They did a couple things in the previous budget, last fall's economic statement, but this budget was really the place to lay out all of our cards and I've called it a big bet. We've made a huge bet in terms of electrification of our economy with, with clean electricity, clean hydrogen as well, assuming that that's going to be the, the energy source going forward, um, clean manufacturing, which is really important to your listeners, and also green finance. So we've done a lot of things as a response, but there's still some challenges ahead. So we've really good kind of first salvo, but we're going to have to be really vigilant going forward to make sure that we understand what the Americans are doing. Well, it's it's interesting about this because as we talk about this, and certainly as our politicians on this side of the border talk about this, uh, there is still some resistance to this about you know if you go too far and it, with green initiatives etc. or electrification or even with the use of hydrogen, it's going to have a negative impact on the Canadian economy because let's face it, you know there are still a few provinces to the west of us here that still rely heavily on fossil fuel extraction uh, for their economies, and uh, they may have to be dragged kicking and screaming uh, into this whole thing is that is that going to slow down our progress if we really do kick and scream it'll slow down our progress but i think the games change so that sort of mindset may have applied let's say five years ago as we were going through a learning process as we were trying out different policy options to reduce emissions in our economy the american intervention really has changed the game because we now have the biggest economy in the world uh, aggressively pursuing uh, reduction of emissions and kind of cleaning up their economy and their, their policies are a combination, they're combining climate policy with a really deep industrial policy, where they've offered massive tax credits for investment, for production of clean electricity, of, of clean manufacturing, and equally large financing to make it all happen. And if you don't respond to that, you're going to get left behind. So that old debate, I think, is kind of five years old. Now the challenge is, how do we actually get nimble enough to maintain our competitive position within North America? How do we attract, us, uh, attract our fair share of investment? and activity to our economy, and at the same time, maintain a level of, 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 of income and wealth so we can all, we can see a prosperous country. That's the new challenge. And you're right. The, the pivot that I've noticed, and, and I, I think you touched on this with the paper, is that, as you say, five, six years ago, a lot of the resistance was coming from industry itself to these initiatives. Uh, in many ways, they seem to be driving these initiatives now. Absolutely. And everything we've seen the last two or three weeks in Ontario kind of points to that. The fact that we had the feds and the provincial government court Volkswagen so strongly to get a battery production facility here. The fact that we, I saw an announcement last week from Ford that they're now looking at the, the plant in Oakville as a central location for making EVs. So we've gone from kind of a resistance period to a, maybe kind of an intermediate period to some sectors actively pursuing green investment to ensure that they can be sellers within Canada, but really to the global economy, to the U.S. market and also the global economy. So the game is really shifting quite rapidly. 
Uh, and the cooperation between the government and, and industry here, I find fascinating too, because they, that didn't always seem to exist. Uh, but you know, I guess part of this thing is, as you mentioned, uh, there's a cost to this, an initial cost anyway, uh, for us to stay competitive. One of the, the statistics, I guess, that we've talked about on the show a, a number of times over the last few weeks uh, is attracting foreign investment. And, and if we're not in the game, uh, and if we're not answering the Inflation Reduction Act and similar legislation in other parts of the world right now, uh, that foreign investment is going to go elsewhere, isn't it? Yeah, we're already seeing signs of, in, in particular sectors, for example, there is some sectors, for example, that were not covered in the budget, things like green fuels, what are called biofuels, which could be aviation, it could be for the ships on the on the, on the St. Saint Lawrence Seaway. Uh, that's, uh, that's being invested in the United States. We're not attracting our fair share there right now. So many sectors are scrambling to ensure that they can win their fair share of foreign investment. Um, you're right. There, there's a cost to doing this. Like the federal budget will probably probably introduce about $80 billion. That's a huge number, $80 billion in tax credits for clean electricity, clean hydrogen, clean manufacturing. But as you stated, if you don't do that, you're going to get left behind. You're going to pay a much higher price going down the road in terms of much lower levels of investment. Uh, our kids looking for jobs in other jurisdictions. There's a whole variety of social impacts as well. So you're either in the game or you're not. And we've chosen to be in the game. The question for me is whether we're in the game really deep enough, whether we have to go another step further to ensure that we can keep up with the Americans. How do you, how do you determine that? Is, is it a best guess or do you just uh, you just figure, okay, because you've heard the criticism from, from some circles anyway. Uh, you mentioned the the Volkswagen plant uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, some say we paid too much for it. And and I guess the, the immediate response to that is, uh, what, what was the cost if we didn't get it? Uh, you know, that has to be factored in too, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you do your homework, you look at kind of the the economics by sector of the impact of doing things, but you also look for, frankly, the feedback from business. You know, investors, Canada is still a very attractive place to invest. We have a stable uh, legal system. We don't have the kind of violence in the streets, frankly, that the Americans have. Uh, there's a whole variety of factors why people would want to invest here, but they're always gonna look for the best financial return, the best opportunity. And to a great extent, the government listens to, to business and hears from business. And clearly, they, they listened and heard from the electricity industry. You know, it was interesting. Uh, Ontario PowerGen actually put a, something in the Global Mail the day after the budget, saying that we're very keen to you know, take advantage of the tax credit we've just offered. So now we have the federal government providing a tax credit to support a provincial utility to invest going forward. But that's clearly a response to the kind of noise that they're hearing. So, you know, I'm an old economist. I believe in good analysis leading to better policy. So you do your homework. But you also have to look, listen to the kind of feedback you're getting from industry as you design things to, that make Canada a really attractive place for investors to stay. Exactly. Uh, Glenn, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time, but uh, thanks so much for this. Uh, I, I, just to tell our listeners, they can go to the cdhow.org uh, website to uh, read the, uh, the details of this report. Thank you for spending some time with us today. A pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to do the right thing. So for us, there's no unilaterally decision made of charging back. There is a conversation and then a cure and a decision that is made. But it's in partnership. That's the way we work with our vendors. Uh, that is uh, Pierre Riel, who is the executive VP and chief operating officer of Costco Wholesale International in Canada. Uh, he was talking to that committee, of course, up in Ottawa that's uh, looking into grocery prices uh, and the concern about uh, some, you know, corroboration that's going on here about why prices are as high as they are, et cetera, et cetera. The one that uh, Galen Weston appeared at some days ago. And uh, they 
just say, you know, it's, it, they're, they're, they're not the, the bad guys here. That seems to be the end of it. Uh, they don't seem to want to talk a whole lot about that other than you know, the, the denials that, uh, you know, that they're price fixing. And I mean, there's some pretty serious allegations have been made here because we're frustrated. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, well, uh, there's some new data right now that suggests there might be a light at the end of the tunnel to uh, to the, the cost of food, the affordability of food for us. Uh, and joining us to talk about this is Corey Mintz. Corey is a Winnipeg-based food reporter and author of the book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Know Them and What Comes After. Uh, Corey, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's, let's talk a little bit about where we are right now and uh, the outrage that many people are feeling when they go into the grocery store right now. And uh, we've, we've, as consumers, tried to pivot over the last little while. You know, we've maybe gone to the to the no-frill stores and to the Freshco's as opposed to uh, the Loblaw stores or, or some of the other big ones around there. Uh, we're buying less. Uh, we're buying cheaper cuts of meat or maybe sometimes not buying meat at all. Uh, do you sense with some of the latest data we've seen here that maybe things are going to start turning around? I think turning around is a bit generous let's say uh things are going to change uh, in terms of you know the discussion from economists back in i think january february was expect inflation which is at uh, you know a decades-long high to begin to ease off in the spring but while overall inflation is going to come down don't expect food prices to come down and they didn't even add a you know usually there's the caveat don't express x, don't expect x to come down immediately this just this was just don't expect them to come down at all and we've started to see at least the first part of that which is you know the bank of canada uh, not raising interest rates inflation beginning to fall um but we haven't seen food prices come down at all and i don't think they're going to so this is the new normal then? I think so. I mean, I, look, if you're looking for a silver lining, they're not continuing to rise at the same rate, <laughs> which would be alarming, um, you know, that we're not facing like some countries in South America, a 100% inflation rate and a complete mm-hmm. unaffordability for everyone, you know, heading towards complete economic catastrophe. But we, I, you don't need, nobody needs me to explain how it feels to go to the supermarket and reach for something that felt affordable for and second guess it. Um, it's, it's terrible. We are all, uh, you know, I watched every minute of that testimony from the C gro- three grocery CEOs in Ottawa last month. And, you know, the one moment of it that felt very sincere and telling to me was Mike Medline, the CEO of Sobe saying, just flat out saying, we've seen the data. Customers are spending less and they're trading down. And, you know, what trading down means, they're reaching for less expensive versions of the same thing. And that's a scary feeling, particularly as you worry, how far is this going to go? I think we've seen the peak of it, but I think we're all going to have to get used to prices at the level that they are now. Because the initial, uh, you know, explanations for these were things like, well, you know, supply chain issues, et cetera, uh, you know, the cost of the dollar. Of course, you know, the, economically, we weren't doing very well. So we're importing stuff, as we usually do in the wintertime, especially produce. It's, it's coming from southern climes, uh, and it costs more to get it here. But I, I think a lot of us said, okay, uh, that sucks, but... Uh, once we start growing things here, uh, you know, and producing locally, uh, we're sure to see those prices go down. But uh, you're, you're skeptical about that? Not necessarily. I mean, ultimately, uh, produce grown in Canada is more expensive often than produce grown in America, and far more expensive, far far, far more expensive than produce grown in in Mexico. And that's due to 
what people are paid and how they're exploited in different regions. I'm not saying we treat agricultural workers great in Canada. There's a ton of problems in our system, but ultimately um, we don't have the super low input costs that they have there, right? Mexican strawberries are always going to be cheaper than Ontario strawberries in season. I think what's important to separate is um, some of the excuses that were made if we're talking about our feelings from these CEOs, which are all legitimate, right? There's all these different costs within the supply chain. They've all gone up. And ultimately, what these three CEOs wanted to say in their moment was, hey, it's not us. You know, any We're not putting our thumbs on the scale. We're not price gouging at this time. Uh, but they would not or could not provide to the public the documentation to prove that. They said a version of the check is in the mail. The Competition Bureau is conducting a market study uh, looking to investigate um, price inflation in food. And they all said uh, basically to the, 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 the MPPs who were questioning them or the MLAs, we provided that information. We can't say it in public. Um, and we haven't seen it yet. That study won't be done until June. So we don't really know if they provide the information that conclusively proves uh, their claim, which is, if you see our profits going up, that's from all the money we're making in pharmacy sales, not food sales. But we can't show you our books to prove that. And, and they are only, yeah, that, that just adds to the frustration, I guess, and the skepticism that many people are feeling these days. But I, I, there are still some elements that, that I still I play here, I would think. I mean, there's still a war going on in Ukraine. Uh, and we know that they're one of the big suppliers of grains, of course, in, in many parts of the world. So I suppose when you look at uh, the cost of, well, things like cereal, or cookies, crackers, or pasta products, uh, you figured, okay, well, that's that's going to be negatively impacted as long as that battle's going on. And, the, and there's some in uncertainty, I guess, as to whether or not that stuff's going to get to market. And and beyond that, beyond the you know, beyond the catastrophe of, of that war in Ukraine and grain that's been sitting in silos for a year, um, you've got climate change radically dispersing where you can grow things and how, how much you can depend on crop uh, predictions from last year. None of that stuff is going to get any easier moving forward. So these disruptions and the price increases that are caused by them are going to continue. Um, add, added to which ultimately we we don't have a tremendous amount of competition in Canada, right? Those three companies control about 60% of all grocery sales in Canada. So we don't really have our local independent places uh, and, and the volume of competition that results in lower prices for consumers. Is this going to change how we eat? Uh, I mean, you know, if you know, if you want to slap a steak on the barbecue, you know, once the weather starts to get nice, and you know, that's something you do every weekend. Uh, steak is pretty expensive these days. Do do we start altering our eating habits? And 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 just as you say that, you know, the the it, the grocery stores as we see them right now is that's the new normal. That's what we're going to be facing for the, the next little while, for probably a long while. So as a result, do we pivot, or do we simply say, well? You know, what, what, what am I going to do? I still want my red meat. I still want my chicken. Uh, what options do we have at this stage? I think so. It depends on your income level. I, I pretty much cut out beef five or six years ago, not as much for environmental reasons as for financial reasons. I just looked around 2015. I saw the price of beef really doubling in, in, in a few years. And I said, other than a few affordable cuts, this just isn't in my budget. I just sort of said, you know what? My animal-based protein is going to come from pork shoulder, um, fish, 
And I just said, I, I you know, once it gets to twenty, thirty dollars a pound for a, a nice piece of beef, that's not in my budget. I think most of us um, make those sort of decisions more on a a micro level uh, on the supermarket shelf when we're reaching for something. But you know, it's all about when we feel that pain in our discretionary spending. You know, because when we see prices go up, whether it's inflation. Or the kind of companies, you know, Uber Eats or our banks or whoever else who can find a way to tack on these extra fees. We go, oh, there's another 5% there. We always just kind of absorb it and go, you know, it's the cost of doing business. Everything's getting more expensive. And usually where we stop spending is in discretionary spending, like dining out and in savings, right? We, we just, we have less at the end of the year and we go, I guess we're not putting away as much. It's the point where you don't have the money for the things you actually need. When you've stopped saving, when you've stopped going to restaurants, and when the fridge breaks or the, there's a hole in the roof and you need now $1,000 or $20,000 and you don't have it, you go, we got to make some real changes. Exactly. And that's where I think you, you start to go, we can't live like this. But uh, it, I think the consumption of beef has been pretty unsustainable for a long time. Uh, the trading down is going to happen on like a micro level. Like We're all going to make those choices on a bunch of small levels as we shop, but I don't think as a culture we're, we're going to embrace that sort of food saving, meal planning techniques that we all should be doing in order to just be wasting less food. You know, we're still, North America still throws out half of the food it produces. We're not really tackling the source of like uh, our behavior, which results in, I mean, w w more waste that is conscionable. Exactly. I've got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the programming and to give us some perspective on this. Corey, thanks so much for this this morning. Thanks for talking with me. Take care. Corey Mintz, uh, Winnipeg-based uh, food reporter and, of course, author. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. 9-1-1 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.